So for the younger ones among us, uh, this morning Marilyn read a message from the prophet Jeremiah. God loved this prophet Jeremiah, and he chose Jeremiah to give the people of God messages from God. Now, he lived a long time ago. In fact, he even lived a long time before Jesus lived. And in that time, there weren't a lot of people who knew that much about God or that cared that much about God. So it was very important that God choose someone to be a messenger and to share what was important for them to know. And so Jeremiah was told to say this to the people around him. He said, God will put God's law inside of you, will write it in your hearts. Then Jeremiah said that God would change the people into more loving people, but it would happen from the inside out. So I wonder what that means exactly. So one of the things I'm thinking is, can we change ourselves into a more loving person by putting on something like this, which is our Mardi Gras mask, and we didn't get a chance to wear it this year, maybe next year, but I could put on a mask. Does that make me a more loving person? I don't Not think really. so. No. I could change my shoes. I could I put on a hat. I could do all these things on the outside to make me look different. No, you need to but do when, it on the inside. Right. It, it's on the inside. That's exactly right. So if we want to be more loving, if we want to do what God wants us to do, then we've got to work on the inside, right? And so how do we do that? Well, I'm thinking that we work on the inside when we gather together like we are now for worship. Because remember, there was a time when Jesus said, when two or more are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. And I'm convinced that that even means that when we gather together on Zoom, God is in the midst of us and with us. And so... God fills us up that way when we're together in Jesus' name. And then I think when we listen to the word of God, when we hear what Jesus has to say to us, that fills us up and it makes us more loving. I think when we pray, that fills us up and makes us more loving because not only are we telling God what we think and what we feel, God already knows how we think and feel, by the way. But we open our minds up and our heart up to listen to what God is telling us. And then that also gets us ready to be more loving and caring. I think every time we remember our baptism, hmm, that's something that we ought to be doing every day, right? So I don't know. 
in church, we have our baptismal font by the door. And so when you come into the church, you can dip your fingers into the baptismal font. You make the sign of the cross and you remember that you're a baptized child of God. What can we do at home? Right? We're washing our hands how many times a day? Ten or more? And that's a good thing. Maybe every time we wash our hands, we remember that we are a child of God and we became a child of God in baptism through the waters of baptism. And then every time we gather together for Holy Communion, oh my gosh, that's a wonderful way that we get filled up with this message that God is with us, that God loves us, that God died for us, and that God is inviting us into this relationship where we can help serve God by loving others in our family, in our church, in our world. So there are a lot of ways that we can love the world from the inside out. It has nothing to do with what we wear. It has nothing to do even with how we act. It has everything to do with what God is doing inside of us to make us more loving. This is our prayer this morning. Thank you, God, for sending us so much love that it changes us from the inside out. And help us to remember our baptism every day and help us to remember to be more loving every day. Amen. And for the older ones among us, the, uh, the rest of the words I've forgotten, but there's a chorus of an old Sunday school hymn or vacation Bible school song that starts out, do you know what time it is? And then the second line, you would answer, it's time to serve the Lord. So do you know what time it is? It's time to serve the Lord. The simplicity of that song's question and answer masks what is a very complex and lifelong learning process for us, namely trying to figure out what time it is. To be sure, we have precise calendars and quartz clocks and smartphones that help us pinpoint our movement in days and hours and minutes and even milliseconds. We have the government to tell us when it's time to go back to school, at what age we have to go back to school, when a teenager can get a driver's license, or when a young person attains the right to drink alcoholic beverages and vote. But then there are other times whose comings are not so easily or precisely measured. When is the right time for two people to get married? When is the right time for parents to start telling their children about drugs or AIDS or sexuality? When is the right time 
for artificial life supports to be withdrawn from a patient who is dying. In such situations, the question, do you know what time it is, can be the most vexing of questions to face. Knowing the times and what they involve require the weighing of a great many factors, and ultimately, a decision has to be made followed by timely action. So, do you know what time it is, is a question implied throughout the Gospel of John. Some seven times in the first half of this Gospel, Jesus refers to an hour or a time coming, but not yet here. Twice, John explained that Jesus escaped those who had wanted to seize and arrest him by simply saying, his hour had not yet come. But today's passage makes a pivotal shift moving from Jesus' ministry into the passion of Jesus. And that's done by indicating that the hour has come. Mystery about the coming hour's possibility is replaced with unsettling clarity about what it really all means. So what time is it? The first clue is concealed within the opening words. Among those who went up for the festival, and this festival that's mentioned is Passover, commemorating God's de deliverance of Israel from Egypt. If you recall, uh, Passover recalls the sacrifice of lambs whose blood was smeared over the doorposts of Jewish homes in Egypt. And when the angel of death descended, those homes that were marked with blood were passed over, while those without it suffered the loss of their firstborn son. So the observance of Passover remembered this time when God acted to save God's people. And on the eve of Passover, a lamb would be sacrificed at the temple to commemorate that act of salvation. The Jewish faithful would travel from far and wide to be present in Jerusalem for this most holy of days, celebrating God's definitive act of salvation. And other people too, even those who weren't Jewish, came to celebrate as well, like the Greeks that came and asked Philip and Andrew if they could meet Jesus. Connecting the feast of Passover to Jesus' impending hour is far more than a coincidence of calendars or dates or times for John. Remember in the opening chapter of his gospel, the first words spoken about Jesus by another person are those said by John the Baptist when he declared, Behold the Lamb of God. 
before Jesus does anything else at all, his coming is linked with the lamb of Passover. And to clinch the connection, John's chronology of Holy Week differs a little bit from the other three Gospels in one crucial point. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples and then is crucified the following day. In John's Gospel, Jesus is crucified a day earlier on the eve of Passover, which means that he ends up dying at the very same time that the lamb is slain in the temple. It is as if John seeks to imply a new Passover is to take place. A new lamb is to be offered. A new act of God's salvation is to take place which is precisely the message that John offers, even as it is precisely the time that Jesus announces this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Since we've also been speaking of Jesus' hour as related to Passover deliverance, we can take examples of glory's meaning from the same experience of redemption. Once the people of Israel left Egypt after the Passover and entered the wilderness, they continued to need God's help for leading and for sustenance, for safety, for protection. When manna was given to them in the desert, Moses spoke about that gift of God's providence by saying, in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. And then when guidance was needed for a way to be found through the wilderness, the, off, the author of Exodus wrote of the cloud that led them during the day with these words. He said, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The glory of God in the book of Exodus is God's choosing to act in visible ways for the sake of giving life to God's people. Glory comes in life-giving manna and in life-guiding cloud. Today's gospel hints that God's glory will also be revealed in another visible act of God's power for the sake of giving the world life. The hour of Jesus' glorification has come. The question is, what will this time of glorification bring? What is God about to do through Christ for our sake? And the answer is clear in John. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world for eternal life. Jesus teaches how God's glory will come in this hour. In a grain of wheat that must die before fruit may be born. 
in the seeming contradiction that loving life means losing life and hating life means keeping life. The words have an abrasive edge to them, even as does the experience to which they point. Glorification doesn't come through some smoothly run pageant that flows with ease and makes immediate sense and makes everybody feel good. Glorification instead will come in a harsh spectacle in which death and burial are necessary forerunners to hope and life. The starkness of Jesus' images of the time now come strip away the false expectations that it is an hour of glory to be taken lightly or one that comes without demands. When God acts on our behalf, a response is expected. A covenant is sought. Sometimes it might seem easier if God just remained hidden. We might be able to dismiss God's claim on us if God remained outside of our experience. We might even be a little bit more willing to keep God at arm's length if we could relegate God's actions to the safety of the past or the hope of the future. In other words, if God's time were limited to the past or the future and everything that we want it to be. The glory of God, however, reveals itself in that moment that we call now. Now has the hour come. Today is the day of salvation. God comes into our lives as Christ came into Jerusalem, announcing that the time is right and the day is now. We may take some consolation that even Jesus was troubled by the arrival of this hour. It resembles the long-expected death of a friend or a family member. The knowledge of it may be with us for weeks and months, giving us time to make whatever plans we can in order to handle its coming. Yet when that day arrives, we're still caught up in its power. And Jesus experienced that same kind of unsettling feeling. Having announced the arrival of the hour and taught its meaning in terms of figures like wheat and grain or love and hate relationship with life, having done all of this, Jesus still goes on to say about this very moment, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? So yes, this hour also reveals trust. Christ recognizes that this hour has been the reason for all of his hours on earth. The purpose for which he has come is linked to the imminence of Jesus' passion. That includes shadows and tragedy, betrayal and desertion, misunderstanding, and even his own death. Yet Christ's trust is that through all these things, somehow what is about to happen is God's glorification. 
This will be the public doing of God's saving purposes, like a dying grain of wheat, which when buried will bear much fruit. And so Jesus concludes, Father, glorify your name. When all is said and done, the great advantage that Jesus holds over both disciples and opponents in the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of John, is that he knows what time it is. The disciples will have to wait for the day of resurrection for their sense of time to be corrected. The opponents will seek to deny Jesus his time, but in doing so, they will only succeed in creating his hour for Jesus. For the hour they deem to be crucifixion is the hour that God redeems to be glorification. So what of us then? Do we know what time it is? The answer that my little church song tells us is that it's time to serve the Lord. The answer that Jesus gave grown men and women was, if anyone serves me, they must follow me. May we know what time it is by knowing whose time it is, and in knowing, then following the one whose hour has come, the one whose cross is the glory of God for the salvation of the whole world. Thanks be to God. Amen.